0: Turn your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Psalm 2. I recognize in a uh, few years, we'll probably all be saying, or the pastor will say, turning to your smartphone and scroll to your app that has the Bible. I'm just reminded of that because yesterday, or this past week, kind of yesterday, I got a new phone, and uh, I don't, uh, I'm not much on technology, and uh, I like the benefits, but I'm not very good with it. And uh, I had a flip phone, and I had to bid fond farewell to my six-year-old flip phone. I'm going to miss it. So if you have a flip phone, keep it, you know, keep the faith if you have it. But I realize we're all going the way of a smartphone. And, uh, and I, I say that uh, technology this past week as well, and this will lead into uh, Scripture here. Uh, I had to travel to... Um, uh, out of town to a place I hadn't been before, the, the, the Satan Hotel I'd never been to, and the, and I had to get from the airport to that uh, to that hotel, and, and so um, before I even left, I got on Google Maps and went to the satellite overview and looked at uh, where it was and kind of how it looked from above and all the streets going there, but then if you know anything about Google Maps, you can now go to the street-level view and basically take the ride— for, with the Google Maps guy around the, down the streets that, that will lead you to your place. Uh, you can see where you're going, basically. Um, and uh, I say all that to say that Psalm, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 both are dealing with that, that whole question of, of where are you going. Um, Psalm 1 asks, where are you going? Which paths are you on? There are basically two paths uh, in, in life. And Psalm 1 asks that question. It poses that issue before you, before us all. Psalm 2 answers the question, where is history going? Where is history going? And so we, with that in mind, let us look to uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And may you help to corral our thoughts and our hearts uh, that we might behold the greatness that is described here, your greatness here in this song, that it might lift us out of ourselves to gaze on your goodness and your glory. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Bill Parcells is a former coach in the NFL. If you know anything about football, you know the name. He coached the New York Giants to two Super Bowl victories. He then coached the New England Patriots, and then the New York Jets, and finally the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, He's a legend among NFL coaches. And uh, several years ago, I was reading an article in Sports Illustrated, uh, and it was focusing on how Parcells had the utmost respect of his players, that they trusted him almost absolutely. They trusted where he was taking them, where he was going as a coach and, and where he was taking the team. And uh, one of the players, Keith Byers, who was one of the running backs at the time, said this about Coach Parcells. He said this, If Coach Parcells tells you there is cheese on the mountain, you better bring crackers. That's trust. Well, this psalm makes some profound claims about where history is going, about the king who is uh, completely in charge, has complete authority over history. And so as we look to it this morning... Uh, no doubt, all of us on some level uh, are concerned about where our culture is going. Every generation is concerned about where the culture is going. Uh, so I'll, I'll give that, I'll admit that. But that still doesn't mean that we're not now concerned where our culture is going. Where, where are we going in history? Where is the world going? Uh, so if, if you're concerned about that, uh, and all of us are, if you have any care for the country, or just for uh, the world you live in, uh, this psalm should be, bring a lot of solace to you, uh, some sanity to our lives. This is a, a, what, what is known as a royal psalm and also a messianic psalm. It's about the king and his kingdom. And I'll look at three things in, the, in this psalm. First of all, let's look at, that's uh, very clearly portrayed here, the stance that man has taken. The stance that man has taken, and when I say man, I mean natural man, man outside of Christ. Verses 1 through 3 it's very clear. Uh, in verse 1, we see the questions being posed. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This question is not a, a, a true inquiry. It's, it's really more of a, an expression of frustration. But in that, it, it's describing the bitter enmity of man the nation's rage, the people's plot. The kings and rulers oppose Yahweh, the Lord, and his anointed. Now, this psalm is, has, had, has two referen- references. The first would have been, originally, a king and his kingdom, possibly David and his kingdom. Uh, it, God had anointed uh, David as the king, as his anointed one. But we know, because of the way Jesus himself uses this psalm, In in Revelation, speaking of himself, and the way the apostles used this psalm, uh, that it refers not just to David the king, but the king, the Lord Jesus. And so it is a true messianic psalm. Of of all the psalms, this is probably the clearest, uh, or one of the clearest, that it is a messianic psalm. And so it's describing here in the first three verses the stance that man has taken. And it is one of enmity. Bitter enmity. In fact, in verse 3, it is, it is declared, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. What is the desire of man? To overthrow the authority. The authority of the king. The, to overthrow the authority of Yahweh himself and his anointed. This is telling us uh, that by nature that man Is at war with God. Paul says in Romans eight, the natural man is at enmity with God. He is born; we are all born thumbing our nose at God. Now this takes shape in different ways. Sometimes it's very overt; it's it's out front. You you can people will be right out front with it against God. But often it's not that way. Uh, So it's sometimes overt and sometimes it's masked. It's much more subtle. I like to run, and one of the places I like to run is the Green Springs Trail, which is not far from here. And uh, one of the trails, and Don and I run there on Saturday mornings, and, uh, and a couple weeks ago I noticed one of the stop signs. They have a little stop sign for the trail, um, in case you run into another runner somewhere, I guess. Uh, none of us are going that fast where we'd hurt each other if we ran into each other. But they have a stop sign on this trail, and on the stop sign was some graffiti, and, and the graffiti uh, says, said, uh, Hail Satan, uh, Ignorant Christians. And it had a kind of a, one of the pentagrams uh, up there. Might have been teenagers, you know, trying to jerk the chain into Christians. I don't know. Um, But uh, that kind of, it kind of shocks us. How can people, you know, in our community say that? Are there people out there who actually like that? Um, Sometimes it's a little more subtle in the current marriage debate that's going on in our country. Uh, What is marriage? Who defines marriage? Um, Most people who are, maybe not would, would not agree with us about marriage or most of us in here uh, will still not overtly say well I don't believe what God says about marriage they'll kind of redirect it I, I, you know, they just will not ask the question what does God say about marriage you know, they'll just say I think marriage should be this so it's a little more subtle uh, and often it's, it's masked, it's hidden think about the, the religious leaders with Jesus uh, they pretended to or even thought that they were serving God. But they were not. They were at war with God. They hated God. So it's bitter enmity that's described here against the Lord. But it's also a premeditated enmity. In verse 3, man is, this, is devising schemes to oppose God, which is really the storyline of history or, or the, one of the storylines of history. Starting in Genesis 3, it's promised. Listen, the The seed of the woman will be, the serpent will will strike and bite the the heel of the seed of the woman. So right there it's prophesied. And it begins with Cain against Abel. You can think of Pharaoh against God's people. You can think of Ahab, uh, a king of Israel, and his wife Jezebel against uh, God. Herod, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Gentiles around the cross, Outside the church and inside the church, there is enmity, planned enmity, devised schemes against God. Acts 4, the apostles, apostles write this, referring to this psalm. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He gets the full gamut there, inside the church, outside the church, against Jesus, against God. Now, what should we take, from, take away from this? Well, there are many things we can take from this, but I think a few are this. First of all, we should not be surprised by assaults towards God or his people. If you're a follower of Christ, do not be surprised that, that Jesus himself will be maligned, and then you as well. Sometimes the assaults, as I said, are, are frontal assaults. They're outright, in your face. It, this is growing more and more in our culture. Our, our culture is moving, as what some Christian sociologists describe as post-Christian, much like Europe. Uh, we're, we're a little behind Europe. Europe's a little ahead of us in this, but uh, culturally we're moving beyond... Uh, the the, um, the reality of that, that Christianity, has sh- you know, Christianity has shaped this culture. But we're moving beyond that. And uh, in, 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 in a post-Christian culture, more people are overt in their, in their uh, opposing God. So sometimes these assaults are frontal, and we shouldn't be surprised at it. The more we move in a post-Christian culture. But we should also see it for what it is. When, when, when people are much more subtle, In their opposition to God, see it for what it is that man is at enmity with God. Believe the theology, believe the words of the scriptures. Whether it's a pagan devil worshiper or a self righteous churchman, it's the same thing. It should give shape to our prayers and knowing how to pray for the church, how to pray for the world, how to pray for people you know. It keeps us from being shocked. Basically, it keeps us from being blindsided. Whatever we hear or see or read, um, we're reminded man is at war with God. But it also reminds us that we, too, if you're in Christ, we, too, were once enemies of God. Once enemies of God, maybe not openly, even consciously aware of it. So the stance that man has taken is very clear. It's one of enmity, bitter enmity, planned enmity. But there's a a more profound stance that's taken here as well. And this is verses 4 through 9. And that is the stance that God has taken. Man has taken his stance, but God has taken his stance and is taking his stance. In verse 4, we read, in response to those first three verses, He who sits in heaven in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What does God do in response? He laughs. Now, why does he laugh? Well, basically it's like this. And and incidentally, this is not not the only place that says God laughs. Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13. Very similar to this. But why does he laugh? Well, basically it's like this. The efforts of man to thwart God are so ridiculous in God's eyes, it's comical. It's as if God is sitting in heaven and he daily observes uh, observes a theater of the absurd. It, it's it, it's uh, preposterous. It's absurd that man somehow could oppose God. It's kind of like when my boys and I would wrestle. We wrestle some. We used to wrestle more than we do, do now. But uh, all of our kids, well, I'll wrestle around with them. But mostly it's the boys. And uh, used to, when they were really small, I would wrestle with them. And I would just laugh and laugh and laugh. And the reason I would laugh is they would get so determined they were going to beat me. They were going to try to use all their strength, and they would all their might to try to beat me. And I would just laugh because it's, it's really silly to, th- to think that they could beat me, their dad. Now that they're getting older, particularly Reeves, he's getting a lot stronger, so I don't laugh as much. I have to <laughs> have to concentrate a little more. He still will never beat me. Even when I'm 100, he's still not going to beat me. <laughs> so it's comical. In other words, it's ridiculous that people... People ignore God as if he doesn't exist. It's, it's comical to God. People, we, we, people move about their lives, uh, act as if he does not exist. They plan about the future as if he does not exist. They assume his blessings, and they, they enjoy the blessings of life, of the air that they breathe, the food they taste, the, the scenery they, they can enjoy. They, they assume that blessing, they enjoy the blessing, but when it's gone or their lives are Upset, they blame him. They, they, they don't want to acknowledge him, but then they blame him when it goes bad, poorly. It's comical to God. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that people openly oppose him as if they could do something about it, as if they could thwart his authority. Again, our culture is moving more post-Christian, and in that we see more the, the rise of atheism, uh, at least in a formal, structural way. The people... Uh, Are adamantly saying, listen, there's no God. And and they have societies of atheists and they have meetings together, almost like church meetings. Um, And uh, I'll give you an example of how our culture is moving more in this direction. In the the army, I just got through a chaplain school, a six month school from uh, the summer until this past December. And uh, you get to learn about all the newest things come, trying to enter into the army as far as against chaplains. Well, one of the things is this. There's a push among atheists now to have atheist chaplains in the army. <laughs> exactly. I mean, God laughs, we laugh. I mean, that is, is comical. What? Uh, but it's true. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. They are pushing to have atheist chaplains, which in some ways shouldn't be shot. And also, it just proves that, hey, listen, uh, it's a religion, uh, but uh, it's comical. And I don't want too malign, you to know, malign people in this regard, but uh, God laughs. But he also announces his plan. You know, he's not impressed with these kings uh, or these politicians or the talking heads or anyone who would oppose him. He's really not impressed by it. And he gives a counter uh, to it. And he announces his plan in verses 5 through 9, but particularly in five through 5 and 6 and 7. We hear words like, he will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury, uh, and then I will tell of the decree. Words like wrath and terrify fury. I will set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will issue my decree. And what is the decree? It's the decree of the rival of the son, of the king of kings, who will rule. A rule that will... uh, that will make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The, the words are, are disturbing, striking in these verses here, describing God and his actions. And it's, it can be unsettling for, for us Westerners, Western Christians, um, because we've been shaped more with a sentimental view of God um, that is, um, I mean, sentiment is good. Sentimentality sometimes is not so good. Uh, and, and our view of God is often, uh, put it this way, we're, we're sometimes more comfortable with a view of Jesus holding a lamb, uh, inviting little children to come to him, and considering the lilies of the field, which are all true pictures of Jesus. We're more, we're more comfortable with that than with a picture of Jesus in Revelation riding on a horse to do battle with his enemies. And with with images and words like these. Ralph Davis puts it this way, commenting on this this psalm. He says, If you have imbibed a Western sentimental view of God as the great soupy softy in the sky, then you will not understand the picture of verse 4 and the following verses. In fact, it will likely offend you. Often you hear the kings in verse 3. You need to hear this picture of the laughing God in verse 4 and what follows in order to get refocused on the truth. He's telling us, listen, when you, when you hear about the kings with a little K, when you hear them, you really need to hear the king and his authority to kind of put things in perspective and how far his authority goes and to the extent of, of this authority. Australian missionary uh, Dick McClellan, in his book, wrote a book entitled Warriors of Ethiopia. And he tells the story of 42 evangelists in, uh, from the Waleta tribe in the southwestern part of Ethiopia. Uh, These uh, 42 evangelists wanted to take the gospel to another tribe in a region, in the Gopher region of Ethiopia. And so these 42 men moved with their families to the Gopher region. They kind of established themselves there and started preaching the gospel. And they saw fruit in this. Uh, Many were converted to the point where houses of worship were being built. Uh, uh, Converts no longer visited the witch doctors. They no longer paid uh, priest taxes to the witch doctor priests they no longer slip bribes to government officials and it was such an effect was had there that uh, many of the officials of the the area were being becoming upset at the evangelists and uh, one day a police lieutenant arrested one of the evangelists named a and uh, when he arrested him he chained his wrists together and his ankles together so that when he went to preach he had to hop around the, the marketplace in the villages to preach <laughs> But Atera continued to preach and proclaim the gospel. And one day, this lieutenant saw him out as he was preaching in the the marketplace. And um, the lieutenant yelled at him, Go back to Waleta and take your Jesus thing with you. We don't want your Jesus here. Atera hopped up to the policeman and he said, Oh, sir, listen. Please listen. I can go, but the gospel will stay. By the power of God, I planted Jesus in Gopha. He is planted in the hearts and souls of the people. I can go, but Jesus will stay. Some things we can change, but some things you can't. And you can't change God's plan, His decree. You can't uh, manipulate Jesus and His authority. You can't control Him. Verse 8, he says, I will make the nations your heritage and the, the ends of the earth your possession. They will be Jesus's. They are Jesus's. And so when you're perplexed at the state of this world, even those who might oppose you because you are a follower of Jesus, they oppose you openly or maybe not so openly, knowing this psalm will help keep you sane. Even give you encouragement. So the stance that man has taken is very clear and the stance that God has taken is even more clear. But there's one more thing we need to consider and that's the most important thing and that is the chance that the king gives. The chance that God gives here. Verses 10 through 12, the king issues a summons. And it's, it's very gracious of this king. If, you are, if you've been in the Presbyterian Church long or part of the Reformed community, you, you know about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the Larger and Shorter Catechism. Well, the Shorter Catechism asks many questions, and, and uh, some of them are, uh, what are the, the offices of Christ, the offices that Jesus fulfills as Messiah, office of prophet, priest, and king? And um, as king, he, he subdues us to himself, and he rules and defends us, and he conquers both his and our enemies. Very, very good thing to know, just what Jesus has done for us as our king. And here it is very clear that Jesus is the king. And as the king, we're reminded that he will conquer. He has conquered and he will conquer. He reigns, he will have a triumphant reign. And here the king gives us a warning and an invitation And the uh, the warning is this: O kings, be wise; be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. The the warning is this: is take him seriously. That's what fearing the Lord means. Take him seriously and submit to him. He is both incredibly kind and incredibly severe. The kindness and severity of Jesus as the king is is on display in verses 10 through 12. Again, our Western mind, um, some of this sounds harsh to us. Some of the words here. But consider how gracious it is of God to warn us. To warn people who every day, day in and day out, thumb their nose at him. Who thwart his authority or attempt to thwart his authority who mock him, who mock his institutions, who mock his people. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He warns, he warns, he warns. So this warning is gracious. Don't see it as a harsh God. See it as a gracious God. But he also invites. It's a royal invitation. I haven't received a royal invitation. No doubt most of you in here have not received a royal invitation. We don't live in a monarch, but some of you have visited England or have spent time there. Uh, Maybe you have had a royal invitation. Um, The royal wedding, some of you might have heard about that uh, last year. Um, You know, you probably would have been excited if you had gotten that invitation if you lived in England. Well, here's an invitation to all, and it's this. Verse 12, kiss the sun. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means... uh, to do homage, to bow your knee to the king, the king. 1 Samuel 10, uh, to prove to you that this is what it means, Samuel kissed Saul when he anointed him as the king. And in 1 Kings 19, the Lord spoke of 7,000 in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. It's Jesus saying, bow the knee, submit to me. Uh, I read a statistic this week, uh, and, and this statistic could be skewed based, based on the worldview of the person and how long they thought the world had, has existed. But anyway, the statistic said 106 billion people have lived on planet Earth, including the seven or so billion who live now. I think that's how many live now. Consider this. The 106 billion who ever lived and whoever will live on planet Earth, every person, man, woman, child, will one day bow the knee to Jesus. Philippians 2 makes that clear. The question is, when will you bow? And, and, and the, the gracious plea is, kiss the sun now while, it's, it, while you have time. This past week, I uh, was in the presence of a four-star general, a retired four-star general. He was once the vice chief of staff of the army. And uh, he was re- he's retired, and he was in civilian clothes, and I was in civilian clothes, but just being kind of around him he's, as he walked by me, I, I just kind of, you know, if you're in the army, you know this. If you're around a general, unless you're a general, you, you kind of get a position of attention, even if you're not in uniform. And he's not serving anymore. And he's retired. Um, and his authority uh, was derived. So he's not serving anymore. So he doesn't have any real authority, even though he's owed respect in some ways and, uh, um, that I would give him. But consider the authority of, of Jesus as the king you see his authority is not derived and he has all authority on heaven and earth consider that and how as you go before him you would want to show that respect that submission to him how how do you approach jesus is a question you should ask yourself is he someone you approach as your king as your redeemer as your lord who you want to entrust your, your life to, to submit to? Or do you have a view of Jesus as he's my, my personal assistant who helps me find parking spaces, when I a crowded parking lot, who um, puts his arm around me and just winks at me, even when I'm sinning? Now, Jesus is personal. Don't get me wrong. He's our brother. He's our friend. But you cannot read verses like verse 12, and come away with a view of Jesus that has, his, have, has him putting his arm around you and winking at your sin. The summons of the king. It ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalms 1, Psalms one and 2 come, kind of go together. It begins in Psalm 1 with, blessed is the man, and it ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Bottom line, this psalm is saying there is... No refuge, no safe place outside of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a believer, come to him. Kiss the Son. It's a summons, a gracious summons, but a, a summons that has real authority. It's saying when it's, when it's all said and done, ultimately it's about the King and his kingdom. Our lives are filled with problems and issues that, and sometimes we can easily navel gaze and get so bound up in our own issues that we forget the big picture. And this psalm brings us back to the king and his kingdom. The stance of man, he hates the king. The stance of God, that he has all authority. And the chance that God gives, he summons us all. Eric Little, was uh, known as the flying Scotsman. A lot of you have seen the movie Chariots of Fire or heard of it or read about it. Uh, Eric ran in the 1924 Olympics, won the gold medal in the 400 meters. Um, the reason he didn't win the gold in the 100 meters is that he refused to run the 100 meters because it was planned to be run on the Sunday and he refused to run um, on the Sabbath as a, as a Scots Presbyterian. you just didn't do that. And uh, he uh, would say when he trained for the 400, I, I run the as fast, the first 200 as fast as I can, and the second 200 uh, faster with God's help. What you may not know about Eric Little was that um, uh, he he also became a missionary to China, and uh, he left uh, for China the next year, 1925, and, and served a while as a teacher, and later was ordained as a minister. And during that time in China, he was 20 years, uh, somewhere in there he got married, had a family and uh, the beginning of World War II, Japan invaded China, uh, at least where he was and um, uh, they urged him and his family to leave because uh, it was going to get rough and so he, he, he uh, took his family uh, and sent his wife and kids to, to Canada where his wife was from and um, they stayed there with her family but he stayed there in China to serve the people there, to serve those. And uh, eventually, uh, he and the people he was serving, the Chinese he was serving, got rounded up. And uh, they were taken to an internment camp, uh, a, a prisoner of war camp, basically. And um, he later died there, five weeks before that, that camp was, was freed. But on the bus, on the way to where, they didn't know where they were going, on this bus, uh, as they took off the bus, Uh, Eric began singing the hymn that we sang this morning, the very first one. I didn't know that was planned this morning. He he began to sing, Jesus shall reign, where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moons shall wax and wane no more. He didn't know where he was going, the specifics of it, but he knew where history was going because he knew the Jesus who reigned over history. We don't know where history's going, where November will bring us. Um, I don't know the details of where history's going, but we know this. If Jesus tells you that there is cheese on the mountain, you know what to bring. Let's pray.